out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. And, as always, we bring you the finest in indie pop and beyond. As you know, some weeks we have a playlist. Some weeks we just have an interview. This is the latter. And it's going to be a special on the sound, all the way from South London, from 1979 right through to 1988, because recently I spoke to the drummer, Michael Dudley, to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other rock and roll stuff. Anyway, this is the interview, and after a bit of chat, we got down to that serious issue that was music, and talking about Michael's early years and what got him into music. This was the response. Enjoy, have fun, make notes. I will test you at the end. Michael, take it away. How far back should I go? I won't go back as far as the records that I inherited from my older sister. No. Let's go back to um, when I was twelve. I don't know, when I was yeah, when I was about twelve or thirteen, the first album I ever bought was uh, "Small Faces, Small Faces, Small Faces," released on Decca. Classic, yes. Which oh. uh, had uh, which had um, "Sha La 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 Lee" on it. That was my first album. Excellent. So we're going um, back a ways. We are. Well, I suppose because I'm. I was born in 1964, so I was. I was getting into the world of top of the pops in the early 70s with people like Sweet uh, and Gary Glitter, and then obviously seeing Alice Cooper, and it was kind of David Bowie was my first single, and then first album was Changes. So that was kind of mine. So you were you were sort of slightly in the more the the late 60s period. Yeah, I mean, um, I started paying attention to people like um, The Faces and The Who, The Beatles, The Rolling Stones and that bunch. And then um, I remember that um, when I got old enough to be pissed off with my parents and spend most of my time in my bedroom, uh, I got started to listen to the likes of Hendrix and Cream. Yes. Um, one particular album that I remember very well from those days was Cream's Disraeli Gears. Uh, which influenced me a lot. And I remember that was probably the first album that I started paying attention to the drummer. Yes. And, what, I'm, from there, and really. just kind of curious, what was your sister's record, records that you inherited or, or sort of heard? Because I've got... Um, Frankie Lane, Behind the Green Door, Bill Haley, Rock Around the Clock, See You Later, Alligator, and um, Little Richard, You Keep Knocking, But You Can't Come In. Yes, well, we do like a bit of... Little... Oh, and there was a Chuck Berry in there as well somewhere. Yes. Yeah, right. Well, I suppose my, my musical, two of my musical heroes were sort of Lemmy and um, David Bowie, and they were both born in the same year. They, they would both say their sort of main person was Little Richard. So, um, yes. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah, so yeah. then, yeah, so when did you pick up the drums? Uh bought my first drum kit. Well, I used to, I used to be, when I was much younger I was in uh, a cadet corps and um, that was my first drum because I used to be a snare drummer in the band the marching band uh, but my first drum kit so I that's where I picked up my sort of basic hand skills really. uh, my first drum kit I bought in 19 
1970 or thereabouts, I think. Yes. Yeah, 1970. And um, fished around on that for a bit, a couple of years, didn't do anything with it, played with a couple of guitarists, mucked about, and then uh, dumped the drums to go off and do something else. And then um, somewhere around about 1977, um, I, I was uh, living in a squat in Kingston in Surrey that I just moved into and uh, what did I have I had no work I was living on the dole I had some clothes in a suitcase and a little radio and that was it that was me and um, I remember uh, I went off to the cinema with uh, a couple of people also lived at the place to see um, a couple of movies there and they left before I did, because we'd all taken some magic mushrooms to go and see these uh, science fiction movies, and they left before I did. And I, I left during the film, because I got a bit paranoid about the people sitting around me, and went back to the squat, and this was a Sunday evening, and nobody else was in, and I remember going back into my little room and lying down on the bed uh, and being completely dissatisfied and upset and unhappy with my entire life because all I managed to do was get to this place where I had nothing. Nothing was happening. And it was really, as Geldof said in his autobiography, which uh, contains, for that period of time, interesting parallels in my own situation, I felt deep in the heart of absolutely nowhere. And I remember lying with him and took this off. And I turned over, and it was about 7 o'clock on Sunday, and I switched on the radio, which happened to be tuned to Radio 1. And the John Peel show came on. And uh, I remember him saying um, something about the Rolling Stones are playing Wembley again this year, but there's this other band that I'm interested in that are playing the 100 Club in Oxford Street uh, next weekend. And if you were to ask me which band I'd see, it wouldn't be the Stones. And he put on um, God Save the Queen. And I remember, uh, as this record started, as Steve Jones's chords crashed in, I just I remember it was like a bolt of electricity went straight through me from my head to my toe. I sat bolt upright in bed, and suddenly I'm made aware that there's something going on, and, I, 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 and you know, punk happened, and uh, there was my route out of my misery. Blimey. That was quite a moment. Dear old John Peel, I know, he saved so many people, didn't yeah. he? Yes. So then, when you had that moment, which was like kind of almost the biblical proportion, really, wasn't it? Um, then, yeah, right. then sort of how did it then progress into sort of finding and forming a band? Well, I went, I went, out, I went out and uh, made a few bob and bought another drum kit and um, sort of got back into, you know, Banging around vaguely in time, uh, met a couple of other guys, bass guitarist and a, and, a, and a lead guitarist, and said, "Well, let's form a band." So we formed a little trio, wrote some frankly rubbish songs, and um, hoiked them around local pubs. Uh, and then during this process, um, a guy I knew vaguely socially uh, came up to me and said, uh, "You know, like, band, well, you played the drums in the hello, Jeff." Um, well, um, how do you feel about um, having a tryout with this other band that I manage? And I accused that. And he said, well, this band called The Outsiders. And uh, their drummer is leaving to go to university and they're looking for someone to fill in. Know, uh, okay, well, that's interesting. Uh, why don't you come and see the band? So I went up to a club in Clapham called the 101 Club 
um, to watch The Outsiders uh, with a couple of friends of mine, and uh, I thought they were rubbish. And <laughs> he said, uh, I, uh, I said, no, this is just, this is just rubbish. This is, uh, so one of my mates said, well, you know, just give it a go. You know, you're not doing anything else that's important. Get them round to the squat, up in the little spare room there. They can all plug up where the drums are and, and see what happens. So uh, I, I gave into that suggestion. Um, Graham and Adrian came round uh, with Adrian's girlfriend at the time, Julie, and Jan, the drummer who's leaving, uh, all crammed into this tiny little room at the back of the squat. And... Um, set up you know okay what we're going to do then well um agent goes uh well let's play tvi and you don't forget that at this point i'm eight years older than the next oldest person in the band which was adrian okay yes. so i that these guys are just kicking off which is really what i was looking for i wanted to sort of tap into that energy you know get some of that going uh but uh, so, but I'd already been around the block a couple of times by the time they turned up. And he, I said, well, what's TVI then? He said, it's a song by Iggy Pop. And I said, well, who's Iggy Pop? <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so, which got me a couple of looks. Oh, God, he doesn't know who Iggy Pop is. Are we in the right place? You know, so, all right, it's good. It goes just one, two, three, four. We're going to just start playing. So we started playing, and I just did a basic sort of bass change in a bit. And he said, no, 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 stop. Well, what's the matter? I said, you make, your playing's too complicated. I said, complicated? You just make it, okay. So we started again. And no, stop, stop. It's still too complicated. And Jan, the drummer was sitting just behind me in the corner, said, look, get off the stool. I'll show you how to play it. All three limbs all at the same time. One, two, three, four. Okay, I can do that. All right, so I sat behind the kit. We played TVI. Uh, I just played uh, four beats of the bar with everything. And uh, then at the end of it, I said, oh, that was really good. Uh, you're in the band. I said, oh, terrific. That's very kind of you. Although I remember thinking at the time, you know, I hadn't actually, you hadn't actually asked me if I wanted to be in your band or not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so it just sort of went on from there, really, and it all just seemed to keep working, whatever it was we did. Yeah. You know, so... Uh, and then it later turned into the sound and uh, the rest is, as they say, history. Yes, because cause with The Outsiders, just briefly, I mean, they were, I mean, you were there between that sort of, the, the, the I suppose those, that, I don't know, the Dr. Feelgood sort of bands, weren't they? The pub rock bands that were sort of... That's blast, it, blast yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Bl- Rods, all that. Yes, Blast Away, and then that punk yeah. period. But it didn't sort of ever quite take off, did it? It was not quite going to, it wasn't going anywhere. But obviously... People were still keen to keep it going, even though that that sort of mm. didn't didn't sort of quite happen. So when you when they said right, forget the the outsiders, the, this is going to be going to be the sound now. Did it feel like a fresh start for the other members of the band who were sort of you know crossed over? Well, I suppose that was Adrian, wasn't it? Well, if you compare uh, our first recorded efforts, which uh, has for a couple of years now been out under its own title as Propaganda is the name of the album. That was our first demo tape we made together in uh, Adrian's parents' house front room uh, on a TIAC 4-track that his dad was operating upstairs. If you compare that to what the Outsiders were doing previously, it sounds like a completely different band. Yes. Uh, there's, there's, more, there's much more melody and structure, song ideas. You know, it's, it's obviously taken a few steps forward into the realm of you know, something a bit more interesting. 
Yes, because because I suppose I suppose I suppose, I suppose well, that was my input, uh, but also that of course since the previous outsider stuff, Adrian been writing more songs that uh, and his own creativity had obviously developed a bit more by then. Yes, because because a lot of the, the indie bands that I sort of interviewed during that sort of period, I mean that early eighties, you know, that period of the early decade, I mean there was a lot of unemployment, so quite a few people were just kind of unemployed, you know, were claiming job seekers allowance, and then a few years later there was the enterprise allowance scheme, which gave, you know, musicians a chance to be on the dole for another year, sort of <laughs> almost in a self-employed way, which kind of helped a lot of those bands at the time sort of keep it going, and then you know you had that kind of narrative where you know like playing away for about 12 months, then getting a single. Then if John Peel played it, that that would be a John Peel session, which was obviously a really kind of a big thing. And then that first album. So that was that was often the narrative of quite a lot of the bands that I've interviewed. So how did it go with the sound in, in the sort of the way that you progressed into the first singles and first albums and tours? Well, we... Um... We just happened to be playing it. We played there's a club called the Moonlight Club, I think, somewhere up in Hampstead. And someone in the audience was an A&R guy for um, Corova Records that the Bunny Men were on. And he kind of brought us along in, in, into the company and convinced them to give us a contract, uh, just following the gig, really. And um, it, it sort of, they got involved and then we had an agent and then there was a tour with the Bunny Men, which was remarkable but you know interesting but not completely pleasurable it's pretty like that uh, and um, it, it all just seemed to bowl on from there without us putting too much effort into it you know it, it kind of came along but um, we started to get into Europe uh, in 1980 as well when we played the Paradiso in Amsterdam but the European situation seemed to develop much more um seemed to become much richer than the UK situation, which just kind of really fell away. Um, it, it, we, we were never really happy with Corolla. Uh, and then, because the, the Lions mouth, which was supposed to be, you know, everybody was going on about, oh, this is one that's going to break you into the big time, lads. You know, you'll be playing you know, stadiums with simple minds and all that stuff. Didn't really happen. Yes. Don't know why. Um, we were, I mean, to be fair, we weren't the easiest band to get along with. We decided we didn't need a manager. I mean, the, <laughs> there was a point where um, we were, we had an inquiry from EG Management who just lost Brian Ferry and they were looking for a new band to develop. So we had a band meeting and said, uh, okay, who, who wants to, you know, get into the big time this way? And I put my hand up uh, to say yes. Everybody else put their hands up to say no. And that was that. Uh, and we decided, no, we don't need a manager, we can manage ourselves. I mean, we could barely get on with each other, let alone <laughs> ourselves as a band. And so you can imagine what it was like trying to liaise with the record company or trying to promote you, right? Yes. So, um, so we had an agent uh, who, uh, we had an agency, one of two guys, one of whom was responsible for getting us into Europe and the other one of whom was responsible for our UK promotion. And they fell out with each other. And the guy who promoted Europe uh, got on with that. And the UK fell off. 
So it was really just people and circumstances and no control or direction, really. But, um, yeah. And can you remember much of that. About, about recording the album? Because often the first album can be a bit hit and miss, getting the right produce and the right sound and obviously gelling as a band. And I know some people, I mean, the first Smith album, I always thought sounded a bit sort of... I yeah, I didn't think it was sounded that amazing. And then they did a John Peel session, which was it did, you know, those several which went onto the album Hatful of Hollow and that sounded fantastic. And then they got their sound. And I remember the same with you know, talking to Fast Eddie from Motorhead. I mean that took a little time for them to find a producer who could work with them. So I just wondered how your your memories of putting together, you know, um yes, your first album was and, and the first single, Hey Day. Yeah, the first album, Jeopardy. Um which in many ways I think is superior to Lionel now. Well, obviously Lionel now is more polished. But um, we we weren't the sort of band who'd go into the studio and then kind of um, rehearse and make up songs using up using up recording time. We we'd, we'd got it all worked out before we went in, really. Yes. So um, how we ended up at Elephant Studios, I, don't, I think that was something to do with Jeffrey, the, our original manager, who came over from the outside. Uh, but Elephant Studios at that time was in Wapping, which that was before the 80s gentrification and just a bunch of like run-down old warehouses and buildings uh, people used to use to film uh, Victorian scenes for films in because it was so run-down and ancient and creaky. And the studio at that time was up on the second floor uh, and the roof leaked. So there was like a, a tarpaulin over the drum booth to keep the water off, uh, a little eight-track machine, and uh, an engineer, Nick Robbins. And we all went in there with our songs. Hello, Nick, these are the songs. Went to work. A week later, um, we had an album. So it was all dish bash bosh and there you go really yes uh, without with without an independent without a producer as such it was just us and the, the engineer yeah but obviously even though i mean it got amazing critical reviews if if, if it didn't get commercial mm. but you you didn't i mean you know you followed it up with the second album incredibly quickly and went to the famous rockfield studios in wells plus you had mm. the, the famous well he wasn't that famous at the time probably hugh jones who i've i know quite a lot of bands have mentioned who has been this amazing producer. So did you have a good experience with him? Because um, a lot of people said he just was an incredible workaholic who smoked and drank. But... Yeah, well, I, I mean, I was okay with it. It was obviously this was going to be, like, he's one of his, if he was a, if he was a film director, he'd have been an auteur, you know. This is going to end up sounding like a Hugh Jones produced album, like the Bunny Men stuff. So if you listen to Lion's Mouth as compared to, say, Heaven Up Here, in the background, if you can pick it up in the system, you can hear a lot of the same tricks of the trade that he uses, right? Yes. Uh, I was happy with that. The rest of the band didn't like the experience because there was no, there wasn't any sort of involvement for them in the kind of the getting to grips with what was going on. It was all pretty much a matter of Hugh will do this and Hugh will do that and play when he says and stop when he says, like that kind of thing. Uh, obviously, what came out of it in the end was was very was very kind of polished and, you know, all the rest of it. But I, I, it, it lacked, for me, it lacked kind of guts somehow. Yes, I know. 
Well, I don't know. I mean, I thought it was it sounded fantastic, but I mean, it was just it's just kind of interesting because 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 often it's the second album, but normally there's a bit of a break. I mean, with your band, it's actually an album a year at this rate, isn't it? And also, there's the sort of the, the kind of the slow introduction of the indie sound because you ha- you were still sort of working in that early '80s, which is very sort of I suppose as a terminology, it was kind of post-punk, wasn't it? Whereas people like the Smiths, the June Brides, and then the Go Betweens were sort of just about sort of appearing. Which which were those three bands mm. often get mentioned a lot with people saying how influential they were. But obviously you were there before all those bands were even born. So, um, you, you know, you were definitely, yes, there at the same time of you two and Simple Minds, really, weren't you? And Big Cunt. Yeah. Yeah. So you did you sort of feel like when, the, you know, from the, lion, from the Lion's Mouth came out, did you feel that that was going to be one that was going to sort of creep up the charts a bit more? Yeah, that was the expectation. But that was the expectation with the record company as well. And then it sort of just kind of blew away in a puff of wind and it wasn't there anymore. And nobody could really work out why why it wasn't it didn't take off the way it was supposed to. <laughs> you know, it's kind of a bit of a mystery really. But um I I, th- I think lack of promotion, uh, because the the Clover at the time were completely concentrating on Echo and the Bunny Man. Right. Uh, and had very little had very little time for us. Which was kind of, uh, I mean, they, they, because they turned around again and said, well, that didn't take off, did it, lads? Why don't you write something like, oh, I don't know, a Duran Duran single and see what we can do with that? Well, you can imagine our reaction. <laughs> yes, that must have been a kick in the yeah. teeth. Um, so, but the, how was the dynamic of the band at this stage? Because obviously it's, you know, a 24 7 sort of existence of sort of recording writing, recording, and probably playing live as well. I just wondered how you were all coping as a band. Um, well, um, obviously there was a change of keyboard player between Jeopardy and From the Lions now. Uh, I think that was largely down to the fact that um, Graham and Benita weren't, uh, had broken up as a, as a couple and uh, he didn't want her in the band anymore. However, I got the job of telling her, you know, so... so Benita left. Although to be fair, she didn't really like the new material, and she she said in interviews elsewhere she quote she couldn't really find a way into the songs unquote. And that was largely because her keyboard style was mostly two and sometimes just one finger. You know? Yes. Uh, so uh, so um, but we found Max. I, I'd heard Max was leaving or Colvin, I suppose, was leaving uh, another band, a uh, local club called the Guardian. Uh, who I'd been to see a few times, and I could see it was pretty much a whiz on the keyboard. So I said, "Do you want to join us?" And uh, you know, an audition, and then he was in the band. Uh, so the dynamic of the band was really—I mean, Adrian and Graham were uh, old friends from their school days; they'd known each other for years. Uh, and then there was me, Uncle Mike, tagging along, trying to keep up with the youngsters, not knowing half of what they were talking about. And uh, and then there was Max, who was kind of lovely guy always go for the line of least resistance to get on with anybody. Um, so it was a real mixed bag. Yes. In terms of, yeah. But then, but then you, you sort of signed to a major label on for your awful down, the third album. Did that, um, yeah. so did you get management on, 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 you know, was, was there sort of management involved for that particular move? No, no, we never, we never had any management, uh, as such really. Um, there were a couple of guys. The guy who was originally with the Outsiders uh, fell away. 
another chap came in who'd financed an early EP called Steve Budd, uh, kind of road managed us for a bit, and he went off and did something else. So it was always really, after that, it was always just the band trying to make democratic decisions about things, which never works, really. You just need... The reason why people like, for instance, U2 made it big is because they uh, had a really strong manager who was able to deal with the record industry. Yes. I can't remember his name now, but which we never had. And so um, the record industry being then, and even now, as far as I can make out, basically just a flea market run by gangsters, you know, you're, if, you don't have, if you don't have strong cover working for you, you're really at the mercy of events. Yes. So I, I think that's why. And I mean, Warner Brothers, we didn't sign to another label. We got passed over to Warner Brothers by Carova. Uh, and um, they started, then they started making noises about what you need to do to turn yourselves into Duran Duran. <laughs> And we just thought, well, you know, fuck that. So we went. Uh, they they hired uh, they hired um, the Manor in Oxfordshire for a couple of weeks just to go in and make this fabulous pop record. They thought I was going to get, and we came out with all fall down, <laughs> which is quite funny, really. Yes. Uh, and after that, after that, they thought, well, this is never going to work. So they just dumped this. Yeah. And did you? And was there sort of? I mean, did you feel with people like Adrian in the band? There was a sort of a creative genius, a sort of a, a Morrissey-esque figure who was kind of leading you. I mean, I just wondered because obviously, you know, he was the main songwriter, and I just uh, and the and the vocalist and the guitarist. I just wondered if what it was like having someone like that working with. Uh, pretty much, uh, pretty much uh, spent most of my time in awe. Really, I mean, it was it was really a case of Adrian plus the guys. Adrian was the guy with the songs and the ideas and the words and the tunes, um, which he would bring along, and the rest of us would help him bash a song out of it. Uh, but really, without Adrian, then nothing would have been there. Uh, that's that's that was the wellspring of creativity with that guy. Yeah, yeah, for sure. There you go. And were you at that stage when you had been sort of, um, I suppose, on that third, fourth album? Were you were you sort of looking at that kind of the scene that had developed and what John Peel was generally playing? Because there was definitely a movement of sort of indie bands and jingly jangly sounds that that were getting picked up from Big Flame to Bogshed and Stump and and obviously you know as I mentioned the people like the Smiths had sort of come along in the June Bride. So there was definitely you know and and I was an in, you know I was an absolutely absolutely obsessed indie kid who loved all that kind of sound from you know a bit of Echo and the Bunny Men, but they had just about sort of had their day bizarrely by then and then it was like everything but the girl and the copto twins i just wondered what you were thinking of the music scene because it was it was almost kind of there for you you know for the taking really wasn't it yeah i says i know a lot of people that i meet nowadays uh who like the sound i've actually not even born when when the sound were around they picked up on it through the internet because uh, there's a couple of bands who uh, uh, are basically not really tribute bands, but are doing uh, songs by the sound that I'm going out with these days, one in Australia and another one in Europe. Uh, and uh, a lot of people that come along to the gigs um, start to talk about other bands of the era uh, and what do I think about this and what do I think about that. But to be perfectly honest, uh, there's very few bands and acts from the 80s when we were around from the beginning to the end of the eighties, really to the end of the sound, that I was could really find myself getting enthusiastic about. I mean the Cocteau twins, for instance, were one that I liked. Um Comsa Angels I liked. Uh you two I couldn't stand. 
they're kind of bunny men. No, not really, nothing there. So I, I couldn't really... It could have had something to do with the fact that, as I said earlier, I, I was from a previous generation that just jumped into all this. Yeah. Uh, and um, I couldn't really... I found, for instance, a lot of the music that they were making to be really, really uninteresting. You know, uh, you know, U2, for instance, um, when they weren't nicking riffs and ideas from the sound when they were doing it and stuff, you know, I, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Really? Okay, I'm telling me about it. <laughs> uh, 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 and so on. So there was a few that I liked, but, but by and large, I didn't really feel that I was, or even we were really part of a movement as such. Uh, I felt that we were really, or it seemed to me that we were one of the bands that stuck out from all that, like Joy Division, for instance. Yes. Uh, you couldn't really lump in with anybody else and say, oh, they're like yes. the other acts. Uh, interestingly, Joy Division, I never got to see Joy Division. I went up to, they, they were playing in 1980, they played, I think it was the YMCA in Houston Road, and Adrian had a ticket. And he dragged me up to see them because he got quite enthusiastic about them. I, I thought, well, if I, if I just go along to the head of the queue and say I'm with you, they might let me in. But no, it didn't work. So I missed Joy Division Live altogether. So close. Because that, I really liked them. Yes, that would have been. So can you I remember... Mean, uh, band, uh, yeah, go on. No, sorry, no. I, I was just going to say, your, your, what was your memories of doing your the, the Heads and Hearts album? Because there'd been a, a kind of a year break. Well, you know, you're probably doing lots of stuff. But, you know, there, there was kind of... Up to then, you'd been doing a, an album a year. And then, obviously, there's, like, 84, you almost had a, a year off. But you probably didn't. But then, you know, in 85, you brought out Heads and Hearts. I'd, I wonder what your memory of that album and recording process had been like. Because you'd also... You, would, well, you're... you were also not on Warners at that stage as well. That's right. Well, no, we got, um, we did an album, we did a mini album called Shock of Daylight for uh, Static Records that we signed with eventually after our, uh, our year or so in the wilderness where we managed to keep going by our agent really getting us gigs out in Holland and Germany. Uh, I mean, it never occurred to us to give up because we were still writing songs that we were quite proud of and we were happy to go out and play them. The fact there was no record deal didn't, wasn't going to stop us doing that. Uh, but eventually we got uh, signed to Static Records and we bought out um, a six-track EP called Shop of Daylight uh, with Pat Collier, I think, producing. Uh, and um, Tim from the Cardiacs on trumpet, uh, unusually. Uh, and um, very happy with that. So the next full album, you say Heads and Hearts, uh, Wally Brill producing. Uh, it, it, it was kind of flat to me that album it was like sort of neither one thing nor the other in fact a couple of tracks on it I didn't like at all but you know uh, played on them nonetheless some of the songs are really good yes. um, and the following experience we get in uh, Tim in on trumpet for the previous one we got we'd met Fiat Lux in uh, Holland who was who was supporting us this, this trio from Leeds I think they were like a sort of synthy pop trio one of the guys, uh, saxophone player, Ian, um, liked him so much. He said, well, why don't you come in and play some saxophone on uh, Heads and Hearts? And I, I think those are the tracks that I like best. Love is Not a Ghost, for instance, which a lot of people I've heard, so they don't like it because saxophone is too jazzy. 
which kind of, you know, I, I tend to shut up at that point because kind of that's what I like, <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, uh, and I thought he was really good. And he, he came on tour with us uh, and brought his sax along and stepped up for those songs and played them live. And it went down really well. But I uh, didn't really get on with Wally Brill. Um, production's kind of, it's okay, but it, there's nothing really stand out about it. And it kind of felt flat again, you know. Yeah, it's a tricky but one. gigs as ever turned out to be really good you know because we always were really happier playing live than constructing things in the studio yeah. yes and one thing i'd noticed actually from that period was that, that there were these kind of amazing gatekeepers you know like john peel was one that you know play on the john peel's show in a session would often sort of get people quite a few gigs at the you know the the kind of indie nights and the you know art centres up and down the country because most cities or towns had a place which would have a kind of a club, weren't they? Like Norwich has got the Wild Club and the Art Centre, and then you had Bristol and yeah. Glasgow, Manchester, Leeds, etc. You know, everybody had a club yeah. which could sort of pull in two, three hundred people who were just kind of you know they weren't the usual, they weren't the band's friends and family and anybody they could emotionally blackmail to see them. They were sort of complete like me indie kids who'd go along so did you find the the sort of the circuit at that stage kind of helped the band as well well in a way that you know it provided venues for us to play in um but as our dutch promoter um commented elsewhere um he tried to get us to move out of the club circuit into playing bigger halls and stadiums uh but um, the, the, the sort of sacrifices we'd have to make, that is taking lower fees and being attached to bigger bands to play as support acts to try and get us into that circuit, it wasn't acceptable to the rest of the guys. Uh, and so we continued, apart from a few instances, like I think we played Park Pop in Holland and a couple of festivals here and there. Yes. Uh, we, remained, we remained a club band, but I think that was largely... It's interesting to think about that because it was largely, I want to say it's largely our own fault. It wasn't really our own fault. I think that by that time, Adrian had uh, developed uh, his illness, had developed to the point where he was actually uh, quite disturbed about playing in front of people at all, I think. Uh, so the idea that we could progress from that circuit up to playing even bigger venues was something that probably terrified him, I would think. Yes. So we never got that far. I know, that's a tricky one. Because when you did Thunder Up, which was um, on Play It Again, Sam, which was um, yes, yeah. that hip label from Belgium, did you sort of feel that that was going to be the final album of the band? I, I just wonder if you, there was a sort well, of... Well, I knew, I, knew, I knew it was going to be the final album of the band because by that time, Adrian Gilmour had become full-blown uh, and there's no way we could progress anywhere after that because Guy needed hospitalisation and treatment. Uh, you know, it just and by the, and I thought um, if this just carries on because we did a final gig to support the album Thunder Up in Holland, uh, and um, halfway through, Adrian just walked off stage, <laughs> left us there. So it kind of uh, it all came to an end, and I went off into the dressing room afterwards and. Um, it became pretty clear to me that, you know, this can't carry on because the guy's in a state of complete breakdown. Yes. Um, 
And that... So, I, so I said, what, what needs, I thought to myself, what needs to happen here is that the sound needs to stop, if only temporarily. Uh, and uh, me and the other two guys had a little meeting. He said, well, we can go off and do something. Go on, Agent can go on furlough, take a break, maybe a year or something, sort himself out, see where we are. We've got to do something else in the meantime. We'll have a meeting and say this. The other meeting came around. That didn't get said. Um, Agent started going on about, well, what we'll do in the future is I'll write happier songs and not be worried about aliens and the government coming to kidnap me and uh, all the rest of it. So I, at that point, I just said, well, okay, I'm sorry, guys, but I'm moving bad. And um, that was that. Yes. And was that was that on that particular gig? You you know, I oh know you said it was. Um... No, no we, uh, we eventually got. I'd already. Adrian had already um, had a previous point where he couldn't go on stage when we were in Spain on that tour. Yes. And um, people looked to me to make a decision. I was all, people always looking to me to make decisions, possibly because they thought I was kind of older and more sensible or something. Uh, about what we were going to do, and I said, "Well, we're just going to stop the tour. Um, the road manager and the roadies can pack up the gear and deal with that, and I'll just take Agent home on the plane." So I took Agent home on the plane, um, delivered him to his parents, and then after a while, we thought we'd have a go at fulfilling the contractual obligation. I went into the next part of the tour in Holland, and that's when Agent walked off stage. And so, um, uh, about a month later or so, we had a meeting. Uh, uh, meeting that I was talking about and when I said well obviously this is not going to fly this is like uh, completely clear to me this is the end of the band so I just said well I'm leaving and and, and that was that yeah. Adrian then went on to have a solo career uh, supported largely by his father uh, and um, as we know in 1999 himself brought him to everything yes a difficult moment. That must have been absolutely horrendously shocking, actually. Having I mean, you probably had never come across anybody like that before. Well, you know, um, I'm a drummer. I'm not a psychologist. <laughs> so it was kind. Of, it was kind of difficult to deal with. But you know, well, I mean, we all did our best, really. But it only became evident. It, it was evident. There's. Um, I don't know if you're aware that there's a documentary in existence called Walking in the Opposite Direction. No, actually, I'm not. No, okay, you should look it up. It's um, made by uh, one of our fans from back in the day, a guy called Jean-Paul Van Mierlo from Holland, and it's all about Adrian, uh, and it covers the sound years quite extensively, and it's basically interviews uh, with um, everybody that Adrian worked with in his musical life. And um, so I was going with this, but he, um, yeah, and uh, it became evident that, I mean, none of us really... In it, his father says that um, the song I Can't Escape Myself, it is, which was recorded in 1980 on Jeopardy, was an early indication of what was going on with Adrian because uh, the song is about, not about himself, but it's about this other person who he was very worried about, who was living inside his head. But nobody knew that at the time. It wasn't until his behaviour became bizarre in 1987 that everybody suddenly realised what was going on. But as I say, you know, we're a bunch of rock musicians. Nobody really knows how to deal with this sort of thing. So um, in the end, uh, the sound finished and uh, Agent Dad helped him through 
the rest of his career. He went over to lived in Holland for a while, had a band there called Adrian Ball and New Citizens, I think it was. Made a few solo albums, and um, and then there was the end. But I mean, I there was a chap that he uh, made one of his solo albums with called Carlo Van Putten, who has uh, a band in uh, Holland called The Convent, or Germany called The Convent, who uh, was supporting uh, the documentary, which was being shown at kind of art film festivals for a couple of years now. Uh, with uh, taking on his acoustic guitar to sing a couple of songs, and I, I, I was aware that he was doing this and got in contact with him and said, Hello, Carlo, do you fancy a drummer? And he said, Yes. And now there's a band called Into the Sound, and we are supporting the film where we can and doing gigs off our own right, which is basically um, songs by the sound from the first three or four albums. Yes. Uh, and that must feel. And I've recently, and I, yeah, it's well, it's, it's it's very emotionally rich because Carlo has worked with Adrian on some of his solo stuff, uh, and also his band, the rest of the band, are members of uh, his other band, the Convent, who've come along, who have actually worked with Adrian live, because they did some tours um, with uh, Adrian back in '97 and '98, I think, where Adrian was the sport act, and he'd come on and sing. Uh, I think it was winning they used to do with him. So they knew him very well as well. So it's a very emotionally rich situation, uh, playing with him to the sound. But as I say, it, it's we don't do a lot because I'm retired now. I'm quite elderly. <laughs> uh, and I live in Spain. Um, three of the band live in Germany and I two live in Holland. But as we all know the songs, um, we do uh, three or four gigs a year and we turn up, people want us to play, and we don't need much rehearsal. And uh, it's quite a buzz, really. But as I said, the unusual thing about it is that most of the people that I meet at these gigs are, are, are really young who weren't born when the sound blew around. They discovered us through the miracle of the internet. So I get a lot of um, a lot of attention and feedback about uh, about the stuff from yes. uh, people who I, I otherwise wouldn't have met, which is really very interesting. Well, it's it's a it's a great way to um, I don't know, just, just I don't know. I suppose it's that thing, as you get older, you know, what you're going to do, retire, you know, it's like, you know, go and do jigsaw. So, you know, being in the band, you know, you look at Iggy, you look at, you look at Iggy Pop and Keith Richards. I mean, they probably during the day are a bit dozy, but then they have that gig and they have to sort of wake up and, and just do it. And they probably, the mind yeah. takes over the body and the aches and pains go as they yeah. hit, hit the first note. So I think it's, I think I guess yeah. it kind of, in a weird way, keeps you young. But I, it was interesting because you, you mentioned about not having to rehearse much because I did an interview with Woody Woodmansey, who was a drummer for you know David Bowie and he said that when he gets oh, together yeah. with Tony Visconti to do that project that they do with um, doing Bowie songs you know for various reasons one being financial one being just like logistics they only have one day of rehearsal before they go on tour and they just think well you know we'll have to practice on our own beforehand we'll just you know they you know they realize they don't want to spend too much time rehearsing they know the material they also realize it's going to cost a lot of money if they spend weeks and weeks doing it and and they just have to kind of crack on and do it but then so that was that was kind of interesting when Woody Woodman told me that um which was kind of fascinating but also I suppose the other thing which I find quite 
quite interesting was that, you know, like this this passing of time seems to be about 25 to 30 years where a lot of bands that I've interviewed did their thing and then they went, right, that's the end of that. I'm going to have to get my life together and get a job, basically. And then sort of slowly, you know, a lot of that music has been rediscovered quite recently and people Mm -hmm. go, no, wait a minute, Mm -hmm. that is absolutely amazing. And I must admit, you know, I haven't spent the last 20, 30 years listening to this music that I used to, but, you know, I suddenly come back a bit more to it thinking, actually, it's, you know, it's not just about nostalgia and wanting to be, you know, it was the golden decade and all that rubbish. It was just the fact that actually there was just a lot of good music and you think, that's amazing. So carrying the baton forward is quite interesting because there are, you know, like you've you've kept the sort of, in a way, the baton of the, the sound going, which which must feel quite a nice well, thing. Well, it, it's, yeah, it's not so much carrying the baton of the sound going. It, it's seeking to keep Adrian's voice in the world. Now he's no longer here. Yes. It's a bit like, um, as I said to another interviewer recently, um, I'm minded of a song uh, by uh, David Crosby from Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, who uh, wrote a song about, uh, back in 1968, there was some student demonstrations at a place called Kent State University. The President Nixon was in power. And um, they sent in the National Guard and shot four of the students. Uh, ancient history now, but it's quite startling at the time. I mean, these days, of course, loads of people are getting shot for all sorts of reasons in America. It's kind of, you know, a daily occurrence, nobody blinks an eye. Yes. But back in 1968, it was a complete shock. Crosby wrote this song uh, called Almost Cut My Hair. Uh, and the song goes uh, something along the lines of, well, almost cut my hair, it was just the other day, I thought it was getting kind of long, it was in my way. And he goes on to saying that uh, I didn't in the end because I feel like I owe it to someone. And that's kind of the way I feel about Adrian, which is more or less why I'm doing what I'm doing with the other bands. Yes. And also, it, you know, it's it's like dealing with life and the ups and downs as, as you know, you can't appreciate what's going to happen when you're younger is you feel a bit like that, you know, the lyrics of fame, isn't it? You're going to live forever, but then you realise you get a bad knee and your parents get old and your cat dies and then you get diagnosed with various things. <laughs> <laughs> you know, all this kind of stuff, you know, going to the vets and getting sort of emotional. You realise that, you know, it's everything is much more fragile than you expected when you were in your 20s, you know, say everything, oh, yeah. you just bounced yeah. along and, and it all felt rather sort of... Uh, jolly okay. and, and you couldn't work out why old people sort of sometimes said the things right. they did but then and, that... then, one, and then and then one day you get old yourself you know? <laughs> and you tell young people you tell young people these days and they just don't believe you they what just, can you do and uh, the days of yes the early 80s <laughs> yes but yeah but, so uh, what, but what the we... songs the songs are there and uh, i'm still i'm a bit like I, sometimes i feel i'm a bit like the sort of post-punk version of keith richards you know people fall off the perch, you know, I just go, well, I'm still here. <laughs> I guess, yes, Charlie, Charlie Watts is still doing it as well, isn't he? So what oh, would you, Charlie, yeah, yeah. what would you say to a, an 18 year old self that was starting out in the sort of the world that is, and sometimes murky world that is music or just the creative arts? <clears throat> Be true to yourself. Uh, just keep bashing away and sooner or later, Bob's your uncle. Yes, that's good. That's my advice. Yes. So what happens when a band finishes like it did and then you and you've been the drummer and you think, oh, now what happened? What what did you actually do when that that sort of period sort of came where you thought actually the band is over? Well, I um, 
went to a few auditions and uh, there was some talk of me auditioning for the Pretenders because I knew a couple of the guys in the band. Um, something in the direction of you with mixed, but it was all a bit of nothing out of nothing, really. So um, I thought, well, really, I need to start earning some money. So I went out and got a job, and that was that. Yes. And did you put your drum... Uh, curiously, curiously um, I just recently got back from New Zealand, uh, which I went down there to see a couple of mates, one of whom was the old bass player from the Pretenders and Simple Mind back in the day and his missus, and uh, whilst we were there, we pulled another couple of guys in, guitars, guitar and keyboard and singer, and um, did a gig as a sound tribute band, <laughs> strangely enough, Excellent. in Auckland. Uh, that was a bit weird. Yeah. Playing with Malcolm again, because I played with I played with this particular guy, the bass player, years ago, just in knockabout sort of pub gigs, you know, and uh, then he went off and got famous, bastard. And... Um, uh, but we've maintained contact ever since. He went and lived, he went and lived in New Zealand. I'm tracking on about something else now. I don't do the sound. But uh, as I say, I went down there for a holiday and we ended up forming a one-off uh, sound tribute band and then did a gig and it went down really well. So that was kind of ironic, really. Yes. Strange. Very strange, but that's the joy of music. And did did you just put the drum kit to, in the loft and say, actually, I'm just going to give that a miss for a bit? I sold it. I mean, uh, the thing about the thing about going, so I went to these auditions and couldn't work up any enthusiasm about them. It was it felt a bit like imagine you're a, imagine you're um, an artist who's helped Michelangelo do the Sistine Chapel ceiling, and that all comes to an end. And somebody comes along and says, "Well, do you want a job painting my house?" <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's a bit a bit like that, really. Yeah. You know? well, and, and on top of that, I mean, it was such a it was such a traumatic episode by the end of it that I'd come what I need to do to get away from all this completely yeah. and just be normal for a bit yes well absolutely did you because actually I always wondered what people like um Phil Taylor Filthy Taylor from Motorhead and I think he did the same I think he you know after Motorhead it was like went for a few bands and went actually this isn't Motorhead I'm not loving it and you know that was the end uh, of it it's just not the same it's not just, the same. it's just yes you're not going to have you know Fast Eddie and Lemmy there rocking it out and it's just yeah I mean I guess it is difficult you you, you just can't fake it can you well it's not so much a question of not being able to take it it's just a, it's just that it's sort of it's pretty evident that you're in another room now and the door's locked behind you so you know there's no point in trying to break back into it uh, it, it's kind of it's over and move on yes that sort of feeling really then, Which, as I say, makes what I'm doing now doubly ironic because, you know, it's, I've gone around in this enormous circle and I'm back doing what I used to do. Excellent. And it was, and obviously, you know, because you, you, know, you didn't just have Adrian, you also had another member of the band die as well. So that must have also felt quite difficult to sort of digest. Max, yeah, I, 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 Adrian's mum called me at work about Adrian and... Um, uh, a lady friend of mine who was also involved with the band again called me at work when uh, Colvin went, uh, and so um, now there's down to two of us. And Graham now lives in America, and uh, uh, we don't really have any contact. And he's not interested in having anything to do with the sound at all. So it's kind of like 
I'd become the curator and guardian of the flame, as it were. Yes, there was a, yeah. there was a classic. And did you ever have you ever sort of uh, been in touch with Belinda at all? Has, has she disappeared as well? No, no. Well, I, I met her at uh, briefly at Adrian's funeral, uh, but that's all really. I mean, we to be honest, we never got on very well. Um, I don't I don't think she she liked kind of direction I was encouraging the band to go in, which was to be a professional and proper rock band. Uh, Belinda was more about artifice and uh, image, I would say, rather she, than, you know, concentrating on the music. Was it a Spinal Tap moment with jumpers? <laughs> <laughs> well, as I say, you know, she was Graham's girlfriend at the time and they fell out. And so, you know, it was kind of like that, yeah, to be honest, I suppose. <laughs> I do.